Okay, would you open in your Bibles to the book of Mark? Our study this morning is in the book of Mark. Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1 is our study this morning. Chapter 8 and verse 34 through chapter 9 and verse 1, our study this morning. I'd like to uh, read this uh, read passage and to get the, the um, context, we'll start at verse 27. I'm in Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Brian and Beth and for their ministry. So grateful for the way that you have used them over the years and the way you're using them now in so many lives, bringing so many to Christ and bringing those who know Christ to a deeper relationship. Lord, please provide all that they need. Please be with their family. Uh, Please be with them as they travel and as they do your will. Thank you, Lord, for them. And thank you that we have an opportunity to partner with them. Thank you that we have an opportunity as well to make a difference where you have planted us to make a difference in the people around us. Thank you, Lord. Give us the desire to reach out with your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Barclay, uh, who I've mentioned many times and does such a great job at background to uh, to the Scripture, says this about our passage this morning. No one could ever say that he was induced to follow Jesus by false pretenses. Jesus never sought to lure men or women to him by the offer of an easy way. 
he sought to challenge them by the offer of a way than which none could be higher or harder. He came not to make life easy, but to make men and women great. I love that statement. He came not to make life easy, but rather to make men and women great. And I think that is such a a true statement about the reason Jesus came. And also such a true statement about what he is saying to us here in Mark chapter 8 about what it means to be a disciple of his. And I like that phrase, all in for Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, that we need to be all in for Jesus. The reason Jesus is doing this at this point in his ministry and training his disciples and teaching his disciples at this point in his ministry about what discipleship entails and to begin with the fact that discipleship will entail suffering, he does that, as one writer said, because he's preparing his disciples for what's ahead. He's preparing his disciples for what's ahead. He's encouraging especially those at that present time who were in Rome and were facing persecution. And he is encouraging with them with the words of Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. Another writer said this, Jesus doesn't really promote his leadership by advertising its benefits. Rather, he most, he's mostly warning the crowd about the cost of following him. He's not trying to deceive them into following him. He wants them to know what they're in for. And as he teaches these disciples, as he teaches these people in Mark chapter 8, he is also letting us know what we're in for if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember from last week that Mark's declaration in verse 29 is the crucial point in the Gospel of Mark. It is the center. It is the center. And I just want to remind you about that. From chapters 1 to 8 in the book of Mark, the main question Mark answers is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And uh, we know that his answer is Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised, the one God said he would send. And that's who Jesus is. Well, from, from chapters 9 to 16 now, the question becomes, what kind of Messiah is he? Mark's already told us that he is the Messiah. Well, what kind of Messiah is he? And maybe even more importantly, or at least as important, the question that he answers is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We're going to see as we look through chapter uh, 8 of the book of Mark, we're going to see several ironies. There are several ironies in what Jesus says about uh, what his disciples should do and the conditions for discipleship. Ironies such as suffering is the way to glory. Suffering is the way to glory. Remember, they were expecting a glorious Messiah. They were expecting a military Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah, a political Messiah, who would break the bonds of Rome over them. And instead, Jesus is telling them, the Son of Man, meaning himself, meaning him, Jesus the Messiah, must suffer. 
He begins with suffering. But suffering is the way to glory. Another irony that we're going to see in this particular passage is emptying is the way to fulfillment. The way to be full is to empty ourselves before God. The third thing we're going to see, the third irony in this, is that death is the way to life. Death is the way to life. Now there are three primary questions that are going to help us to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 8. In verse 34, the question is, what does it mean to be a disciple? And Mark lays it out. Uh, It means surrender. It means identifying with Christ. It means suffering for Christ. It means following Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple? The second question is, were the disciples throwing their lives away? Were they doing the right thing? Had they chosen the proper path? And that's answered in verses 35 through 37. Were the disciples doing the right thing? Were they throwing their lives away? They thought, they mistakenly thought the Messiah that would come would be a political leader, a military leader. Instead, Jesus said, he's a suffering leader. Well, if you are the disciple of a suffering leader, what can you expect in your life? What can I expect in my life except suffering as well? Were the disciples throwing their lives away? The third question in verse 38 through chapter 9 and verse 1 is this, what is the place of glory? What is the place of glory? Well, that, that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, uh, the question I want to start with isn't one of those three. The question I want to start with comes from Peter's declaration in chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus begins to teach them in verse 31 that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In other words, Peter decides, and we looked at this last week, Peter decides, I'm going to teach Jesus something. No, suffering's not a part of this package. Suffering is not a part of this package. Peter confidently gives Jesus terrible advice. Jesus confidently gives Peter terrible advice. In fact, he becomes in this particular instance the mouthpiece of whom? Satan. In this particular instance, He becomes the mouthpiece of Satan. The things that he is urging upon Jesus Christ, the things that he is urging upon the Messiah, the things that he is urging upon his Savior come from the lips of Satan. It's the same thing Satan tried to do in Jesus earlier in Jesus' life and ministry in the temptation of Jesus Christ to deter him from going to the cross. Peter's speaking Satan's desires here. Peter is speaking Satan's desires. Well, that leads one of of the writers to asking a question. It's not one of the three that I mentioned a moment ago, and we'll start with this question because we finished with it last week and didn't get a chance to answer it. 
And that is, this led one writer to say, how can we distinguish someone's honest doubt from the enemy's voice? In other words, how can we evaluate the biblical ministry, that somebody, biblical uh, answer that somebody gives to us? How can we evaluate the biblical advice that another person, uh, especially another believer, gives to us? How can we evaluate it? How do we know that it's the right advice? How do we know that what they're saying is good advice for us to follow? And the writer came up with a couple of scripture that we can use. And I think this is helpful to us because many times we need somebody to, to help us along the way. We need somebody to give us advice. We need somebody to direct us. But we want to be sure that what we are hearing from them, we want to be sure that what they are teaching us is the right thing. So how can we do that? How can we evaluate the advice we're given? How can we evaluate the, uh, and make sure that it's not the enemy trying to obstruct God's direction for us and trying to uh, obstruct God's will for us? Let me give you a couple of scripture that may, will help us with this. Number one is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 23. And that is, is the person who is advising you producing the fruit of the flesh in their lives or the fruit of the Spirit? Are they producing the fruit of the, the flesh in their lives or are they producing the fruit of the Spirit? That's an important question. If they're not producing the fruit of the Spirit, their advice isn't going to send you or me in the right direction. And so we must be careful about that. The second scripture is Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Is there mind on earthly things or is there mind on heavenly things? Whose mind would you say Peter, who, whose uh, things was Peter's mind on in this passage? Was he thinking about heavenly things or was he thinking about earthly things? He was thinking about earthly things. You're not going to get great advice from somebody who's thinking about earthly things and doesn't have the things of God in mind. And so the first thing you want to do is look for a person who is producing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives rather than the fruit of the flesh, and you can find that in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 23. The second thing you want to ask is, is there mind on heavenly things or earthly things? That's Philippians 3, 18 to 19. The third passage you want to look at is Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Are they rebellious? Do their actions affirm that they know God? Do their actions affirm that they know God? And then James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Are they self-serving or are they serving others? Are they self-serving or are they serving others? And finally, the last scripture, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. Do they hate or do they love? Do they hate or do they love? Are they producing the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Are, is their mind on heavenly things or earthly things? Do, they, uh, do their actions deny or affirm that they know God? Are they self-serving or serving others? 
Do they hate or do they love? I think those are good questions that we can use to evaluate the advice that we are, are given. Well, Jesus is telling us that we need to see things from God's point of view. We need to see things from God's point of view. And so Jesus begins to teach in verse 34 of chapter 8 what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has already dealt with suffering, and uh, suffering, as one writer said, was not inappropriate to the role of Christ, and it's not inappropriate for the Christian. In other words, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ should not expect to escape suffering in our lives just because we are believers in Christ. We are not exempt from suffering. We don't have a get-out-of-suffering card in our lives. So as the writer said, suffering was not inappropriate to the role of Christ, and it's not inappropriate for the Christian. If the Son of God suffered, we can expect God's other children to experience suffering too. Only a person with blurred spiritual vision could look at our suffering Savior and then expect the Christian life to be all roses and no thorns. I'm afraid sometimes when we share our faith with others, we kind of clean it up, don't we? We don't tell them about the challenges we've had. We, we don't tell them about the defeats that we've had. We don't tell them about the things that we wish were not in our lives or that God was not allowing in our lives. We don't tell them about those. We just tell them, boy, everything is rosy. Well, suffering was a part of our Savior's life. Why should we believe that suffering wouldn't be a part of our lives, that difficulty wouldn't be a part of our lives, that there wouldn't be things that would come into our lives that would challenge us, challenge our faith, challenge our commitment to God, challenge our commitment to doing His will and going His way and sharing our faith. How many Christians, because of suffering, have turned away? Have turned away and perhaps they didn't realize suffering would be coming. You see, as another writer said, there are many Christians who believe that faith in God's promises will protect them from life's hardships. In other words, they believe that if you're a believer in Christ, that you will never have difficult times, you will never have suffering, you will never go through those difficult things. And then it happens. And then it happens. And as the writer said, the tragedy is that suffering forces them to conclude that God is punishing them because they have not enough faith. How sad that is. As the writer said, when they need God's comfort the most, they see God as angry at them. When they need God's comfort the most, they see God as angry at them. Well, Seeing things from God's point of view, being a disciple of Christ, suffering precedes glory. God transforms suffering into glory. Then Jesus, in verses 34 through 37, talks about the conditions of discipleship. What does discipleship involve? Well, he's already told them it involves suffering. But discipleship for you and for me, discipleship for the people that he's talking to in Mark chapter 8. Discipleship involves not just suffering, but submission 
to Him, sacrifice for Him. It involves surrender. It involves identifying with Christ. It involves following Christ. J. Dwight Pentecost interestingly divides the discipleship into three stages. And I thought it was interesting the way he did it. Uh, and I thought it was a good way for us to determine where are we at in the discipleship continuum? Where are we at? He said the gospel reveals three stages in the development of a disciple. There is the curious. That is those who came, and he's looking here at what Mark has shared with us, those who came out of curiosity to hear Jesus' words and see his works. Those who came out of curiosity to hear Jesus' words and see his works. That's the first stage of discipleship. The second stage is the convinced. Those from among the curious who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the convinced. Those who from among the curious put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the third stage of a disciple is committal. Committal. Now, Christ demanded that the convinced make a commitment. In other words, Christ is not willing to have us stay in the curious stage or in the convinced stage, but he desires that we move on to the committed stage. And the question I think for each of us is where are we at? Are we curious? Uh, are we curious about Jesus' words? Are we curious about his works? Secondly, are we convinced about who he is? Are we convinced and have we put our faith in Jesus Christ? And then, thirdly, are we committed? Are we committed? Jesus doesn't leave it open to us to put our faith in him and then just go on with our lives the way they were. Go on living for the things we did. Jesus desires that we be committed to him. Jesus desires that we make a commitment to him. Curious, convinced, and committed. J. Oswald Sanders, uh, writer of biblical, the book Biblical Leadership, which is a tremendous book if you've never studied. I bet you, how many of you know the book by J. Oswald Sanders? a couple of you. It's a tremendous book. It's well worth reading. It's well worth studying about biblical leadership. He said this, we are called to experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, not merely the fun of his popularity. We are called to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, not merely the fun of his popularity. Uh, there are many stories about David Livingston. Uh, many stories that uh, he was quite a unique person. And he said this, uh, in fact, he wrote in his journal concerning his selfless life. And he said this, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, 
peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice, save rather it is a privilege. It is a privilege to grow, grow close to our Lord. It's a privilege to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to do those things. It is a privilege to be committed to him. It is a privilege for each of our lives. Well, discipleship involves surrender. It involves identifying with Christ. It involves following Christ. Jesus said it this way in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These are the conditions Jesus lays out for you and me as his disciples. Interestingly enough, everyone is an imperative. Everyone is an imperative, which means it is what? It is a, a command. An imperative is a command. In other words, when Jesus said that we are to deny, our, to deny ourselves, when he says we are to take up our cross, when he says we, we are to follow him, he is saying that we are commanded by him to do that. It's not optional. It's not like, well, if we feel like being committed to Jesus, if we feel like giving it all to Jesus, if we feel like being all in for Jesus, how much better is that for us? He's not leaving a way. Do you, do you see? He's not leaving a way for us to be mediocre believers in Christ. He's not leaving a way for us to be mediocre believers in Christ. He's not leaving a way for us to be half-hearted believers in Jesus Christ. He wants us and demands and commands that we be all in for him. That we be all in for him. Now, what does he mean when he says deny self? He's calling for the dethronement of self in our lives. He's calling for the dethronement of self in our lives. He's calling for us to live a Christ-centered life. God, not self, at the center of our lives. It is so easy and so natural for us to put ourselves at the center of our lives to put our desires, our will at the center of our lives instead of thinking through his will, his way, his word, and put him at the center of our lives. Jesus is saying, let him say no to himself. Let him say no to himself. Let him say no to not thinking about his own good. We're not to deny our personalities. We're not to deny things and become ascetics, go and, and live uh, in a, a cave somewhere, have no uh, interaction with other people. He is saying that we are to say no to self-seeking. We are to say no to self-will. We are to say no to selfish interests. Self is no longer the object of our life. Self is no longer the object of our actions. We must set aside our own will and our own right to our lives. We must set aside our own will 
and our own right to our lives if we are to be disciples. It's not a suggestion, folks. It's an imperative. It's a command. Let him say no to himself. Let him say no to himself. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. I am bought with a price and I am no longer my own. I am bought with a price and I am no longer my own. Galatians 2.20 where Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To deny ourselves, we must live a Christ-centered life, not a self-centered life. A Christ-centered life, not a self-centered life. We must deny self. We must take up our cross. What does that mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, anybody in that day that heard Jesus would understand very well what it meant to take up your cross because they would see all the time those who were being crucified because they had rebelled in some way against the, the, the authority of Rome. And by carrying that cross and being uh, crucified on that cross, they were acknowledging that they had violated the authority of Rome. Well, when Jesus says, uh, we are to take up our cross. It means we are to follow him in submission to his will. We are to submit to the will of God. We are to say yes to God's will and way. The cross was a public demonstration of submission. The cross was a public demonstration of submission. Submission to the rule that one was opposing. That's what Jesus is saying to us when he tells us to take up our cross. It's a public declaration of our submission to God whom we had previously rebelled against. Whom we had previously rebelled against. It does not mean putting up with some irritation in life. How many times does somebody say, I don't know about you, but it drives me up a wall. When somebody says, I guess this is the cross I must bear. No, 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 you don't even have a clue. If you can say this is the cross I must bear, you don't even have a clue what it means. We all have irritations in life. We all have difficult times in life, things that we don't like, irritations in our lives. That's not what it means when it says to take up our crosses. It doesn't mean to stoically bear up under life's troubles. It does not mean to stoically bear up under life's troubles. It does mean obedience to God's will as revealed in his word. It does mean accepting consequences. It does mean to have no reservations in following Christ. To have no reservations in following Christ. Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. Follow me, again, is another imperative. The, it's a present imperative, which, as one writer said, means saying no to self and yes to God is to continue all through one's following Jesus. Saying no to self and yes to God is to continue all through following one's following, one's following Jesus.
Well, we are to sacrifice, we are to submit, we are to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And now that answers our first question. And now answering our second question, were the disciples throwing their lives away? Were they doing the right thing? Had they chosen the right path, the proper way? We see the answer to that in verses 35 through 37, where we read this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. There is some disagreement about what that means. There's some disagreement about what save lose, and lose means in this context. There are two ways to see it. Some people believe it is speaking to unbelievers and it is talking about eternal life. To save your life means to maintain a self-centered life, those who believe this say. To lose your life is to ultimately lose your life to eternal ruin. To lose is to deny oneself, to give over their lives. To save is to preserve their lives forever, an heir to eternal life. So there are those who believe that this is written to unbelievers here. It is written to those who have not yet made the decision to trust Christ. If they maintain a self-centered life, they will ultimately lose their lives to eternal ruin. If they instead deny themselves, give their lives over, even perhaps in literal martyrdom, they will preserve their lives forever as an heir to eternal life. And that is one possibility. It may be interpreted. That may be a proper interpretation. The interpretation I prefer is the interpretation that says this is written not to unbelievers who need eternal life, but rather it is written to believers. And what Jesus is saying to you and to me is that we must make our life count for him. We must make our life count for him. That's what I think is being said. That's what I think Jesus is saying. Uh, it's kind of like Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about that phrase, for me to live is Christ. Substitute anything else, and it is not gain but loss. For me to live is money. To die is to lose it. For me to live is status. Again, to die is to lose it. For me to live is power. For me to live is my job. To die is to lose it. Jesus is the only one that we can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, every one of us has a life that God has given us and we can either invest it or we can waste it. We can invest it or we can waste it. We have seen a great example 
with Brian and Beth sharing their, uh, what God is doing in their lives and through their lives, uh, we can either invest our lives, and what a great example of investing your life, or we can waste our lives. I think that's what Jesus is saying here with the saving and losing. He's saying, make your life count for Jesus. Make your life count for Jesus. Invest your life. Don't waste it and don't squander it. Jim Elliott in Gates of Splendor uh, said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, we've seen the place of suffering. We've seen the conditions of discipleship. Jesus is asking the question here uh, in verse 35, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? The expected answer in verse 36, it is not good. The expected answer in Greek in verse 37 is nothing. There's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. Did the disciples waste their lives? Were they wasting their lives? Had they made the wrong choice? Eternal life, Jesus is saying, is of greater value than physical life. Eternal life is of greater value than pleasures and possessions. Lastly, Jesus says in verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. When Jesus talks about being ashamed of him, he means for those who deny him, those who reject him, those who retain allegiance to self, those who fear the world's contempt. And because of that, they reject Jesus Christ. Jesus said he will be, they reject him, and in that day, that he will reject them. He will reject them. Finally, what is the place of glory in this Jesus speaks here of when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then in chapter 9 and verse 1, which introduces the transfiguration, which we will talk about next week, he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. I believe that what that is referring to is what happens just a few days after that when Jesus is transfigured before three of his disciples. The place of suffering, the place of submission, the place of sacrifice, the place of glory. Jesus is calling us to follow him, to be all in for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus' challenge to his disciples and through them challenge to us. And not just a challenge, Lord, but it's also a comfort to know that we will have challenges in this life. We will have suffering in this life. We will have difficulties in this life. But you have gone before us and you have made the way. 
Help us to deny self. Help us to take up our cross. Help us to follow you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.